Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Aaron Mack. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, September 3rd. On today's show, we'll talk about the new book Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, which just came out on Tuesday. Written by New York Times technology reporter Mike Isaac, the book traces Uber's rapid rise and fall. He hones in on co-founder Travis Kalanick's winner-take-all approach that helped Uber transform transportation, but it also embroiled the company in countless scandals. We'll talk to Mike about what he found. After the interview, my colleague Shannon Paulus will join me for Tone Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Uber told investors last month that it lost $5.2 billion in the second quarter. This caps off what has been a punishing few years for Uber. It seems like the company has weathered every kind of scandal you'd associate with Silicon Valley. Privacy invasions, sexual harassment, toxic culture, intellectual property violations, and fights with gig workers. In 2017, a brutal year for the company, co-founder Travis Kalanick was finally forced out as CEO. The new book, Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, chronicles these back-to-back scandals. It's an account of the company's founding, quick rise, and even quicker fall. And it's just a bonkers read. Some parts just seem like a straight-up satire of Silicon Valley. But at the same time, I walked away weirdly admiring Uber's hustle. With me now is the author of the book, Mike Isaac, who is a technology reporter for the New York Times. Mike, this is a really, really good book. Uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And thank you for reading it. Yeah, it was, it was a great read. I wanted to first get into the title, Super Pumped, which is, in one sense, this kind of bro-y term that people in the book keep throwing around. Um, why did you go with Super Pumped? Yeah, I needed something to really capture the vibe inside of Uber, at least during the reign of Travis Kalanick. And he came up with this list of 14 sort of maxims or rules in, in mm-hmm. the name of uh, similar to how Amazon has like 14 principles for their company. And one of the big ones was the level of super pumpedness that employees <laughs> at Uber have. Right. And uh, part of how they used to evaluate employees when Travis was CEO was by how, how super pumped one was and how much sort of zeal they brought to the job. So it's, it's semi-cheesy, but I really think this is the stereotypical Uber worker under Travis that he was looking for, someone who's ready to attack the day and attack their job and not super self-aware when they're doing it either. Yeah, you write a pretty intimate profile of Travis Kalanick. You even like describe his reputation in middle school. Can you talk about how you thought about portraying him in the book? Yeah, you know, you know, Uber, as you had noted, just had a gnarly 2017. And most of folks' intro to Uber, at least more recently, was just scandal-ridden, bad company, you know, bad culture, blah, blah, blah. And I, th- I think Travis is a compelling figure to me because he has these, you know, deep issues and some would say, like, problems that ended up taking him out in the end. But I think he also was is just sort of this tragic figure because a lot of what built Uber into this enormous company is what makes Travis such a compelling CEO. From from a very young age, he never accepted anything uh, less than winning whatever he did, whether it was selling, you know, hundreds of knives over the summer and being right. Cutco's like top salesman or uh, beating all of his friends and running up the ranks of Wii Tennis, you know, in his mm-hmm. off hours. So He's this guy who's a who's like sort of a dogged competitor, but also I think it belies this kind of um, nerdy wish to be cool. 
And at the end of the day, when he's sort of pushing this black car baller image, <laughs> making it rain at the club with Beyonce, I think it's just, I think he just wants to be cool. He wants to be a cool startup founder. <laughs> I don't know. I think that drives a lot of uh, how companies position themselves in Silicon Valley today. I mean, it seems like you almost have some measure of sympathy for him. I mean, do you think he largely deserved or lived up to this kind of bullying man-child reputation? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I think at the end of the day, he was not able to scale back the assets that turned into liabilities. And, uh, you know, some a more mature founder or someone who was who was able to better grow with the company that they were um, behind or that they had created uh, would maybe they would still be there. Maybe he would still be there if he was able to sort of change in time. But I think 10 years, 10 years is a long time for any sort of startup with that much capital in it to be a private company. So 10 years of, of just baggage ended up catching up with him by 2017 and, and getting him pushed out of the company. I, I do think it was important to me to make him less of a caricature that he turned out to be just in initial coverage, just because like, you know, he's a, he's a person and, um, there's a lot of different things going on in there. But like in the end, like he wasn't able to sort of change in time, at least. You write a lot about his relationship with um, Ariana Huffington. Do you think that she was kind of a Sheryl Sandberg presence or do you think she was more of like an enabler for Travis? Ariana is, is a fascinating character for this book. She's another person that I was trying to sort of capture. It's hard to really capture. her. There's been a lot of profiles written her over, written about her over the years, and she always seems to have a leg up on what the next edge or the next thing is going to be, whether it's you know politics or digital media or ride sharing or wellness or whatever the next thing she's into. And she got close to Travis very early on and ended up becoming a board member after they weren't able to get Oprah to be on their board. And uh, but it worked. It worked out into a pretty close friendship with Travis and Ariana. They were really tight. And later on, when things were hitting the fan and Travis was fighting for his CEO seat, he didn't have that many friends left. And Ariana was one of his last close friends that that really sort of believed that he could still be at the top of the company. Yeah, what struck me about the book was just how lonely this guy seemed to be. Um, like his, his girlfriend and Ariana, his parents were his main social life. But I guess at that point, you're. That's what you have to uh, kind of live with. You write a lot about the idea of the cult of the founder. Mm. What do you think Silicon Valley learned about founders from Kalanick? <laughs> I think there's like there's two ways to go with this. On the one hand, you know, we're in this sort of 2019 era of tech clash, right, where, um, you know, post Trump's election, the fall of Facebook, at least in, in like less uh, Zuckerberg and Sandberg's like less glamorous image in the public eye. Folks are starting to wonder if, you know, maybe founder worship and sort of praising the genius of of a 20-something is not the way to go anymore. Maybe we should be more conscious in how we build these companies. Maybe startups should really try to to have more foresight, build more sort of ethical guidelines into the into their DNA from the outset. And like that's a that's a potentially hopeful version of maybe post post 2019 uh, Silicon Valley. On, on the other hand. You know, Travis is a billionaire five times over. Uh, anyone right. who got into Uber at an early point is doing very well financially. And, you know, there's there's a case to be made that maybe no one really learned a whole lot. And uh, we'll see what, what companies look like going after. Travis had this kind of growth at all costs approach to running Uber. And it made the company really successful. But at one point, do you think it started actively hurting the company? 
There's a number of parts in the book that I talk a lot about uh, them going into different countries. And I think they, they did a really good job early on in the United States sort of parachuting into places and and setting up on the ground and just getting out, getting Uber out as fast as possible. And once their whole thesis was once someone tries Uber, you know, a handful of times, they become a customer for life. And that ended up like bearing out in the data because Uber became an indispensable product for people who really connected with it. But I think the other part of that, and this is really an indictment of technology at large, is is when you parachute into different parts of the world in which you have no cultural or, you know, social context for what you're doing, you can really mm-hmm. kick up some disturbing things, right? In in Brazil in the 2016, I believe it was, Uber was really growing fast in South America, especially Brazil. Um, they were in one of the worst economic climates of their, in the country's history. Unemployment was skyrocketing. They introduced Uber where these Drivers were taking cash as payments, and they essentially became sort of like rolling ATMs to be robbed by burglars in, in the in the area. And so this growth of the service in Brazil without proper checks on identity of riders ended up resulting in the deaths of, you know, more than a dozen people in the country. And it was it was really a, a sort of brutal and violent time for Uber growing in places where they didn't know how how they would even operate or what the effect would be. But they sort of pushed headlong and tried to keep pushing through it. Yeah, another country you write a lot about is China. Um, I mean, Kalanick had this obsession to break into the Chinese market. But even the biggest companies like Facebook and Google have kind of failed there. I mm. mean, why did Uber think they could succeed where others hadn't? I think Travis in particular relies on his charm. He's a very charming guy in person. Like he's got this sort of boyish thing going on and, and puppy dog eyes and grin and <laughs> whatever he right. thinks he can sort of. He has a he has a charisma that I don't think Zuckerberg or Page uh, or even maybe Bezos has in real life that he seems to have down, you know, maybe maybe a little bit more closer to jobs in that regard that he can charm people in real life. And I think he really believed that he would be able to get close to the Chinese government. He did a lot of face to face time with Xi Jinping and other officials in the party and and just like Uber is not a content company that needs to have like censorship over it, right? It doesn't face the same challenges that a Twitter or a Facebook does where the the party is is worried that, you know, sort of Western democratic ideals are going to infiltrate the discourse over there and they need to censor it. So his whole point was, look, I don't want to be a Facebook or a Twitter. I just want to provide rides in the country. And so he thought that would work, but um, ultimately it did not. Right. It was the, the Chinese like to back Chinese companies, and, and Didi seemed to one out, one out over Uber in that case. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Mike Isaac, author of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So you write that Uber was one of the most masculine companies in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm curious what exactly you mean by this and if you think this was to its benefit or detriment. I say masculine. I, I think I, besides like the literal version where there are just a lot of men, I think, I think 
I think dominance and being like sort of alpha inside of the company tended to win. Folks would take this kill or be killed mentality to internal competition and, and how they would protect their areas or grow their regions or tick up their numbers. You know, if they weren't making their numbers and managers would be, you know, sort of screaming and yelling at underlings. So it was definitely one in which like, I would say this sort of like barbaric urge to to conquer uh, seemed to thrive more often than not, is what I would say. Yeah. I mean, why do you think they never really managed to completely demolish Lyft? Um, was it because of the delete mm. Uber thing? Well, you know, this is a funny thing. Um, I don't think people really realize Lyft was actually at its death's door towards the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. They weren't, they weren't having problems raising further funding. They were running out of money. Uh, ridership was just going downhill and they were closer than ever to, to sort of closing up shop. And um, then 2017 happened and Uber got the, the wind knocked out of it by scandal after scandal, whether it was, like you said, harassment or this sort of like really broish toxic culture uh, meme or this guy on Twitter, this one random guy on Twitter starting a hashtag delete Uber that ended up spreading to more than a half a million account deletions on the service. It really gave Lyft the second win that it needed in order to go and raise money and, and ultimately become a public company. And it's really crazy to think of like what a world without Lyft now would have been. It would have just been Uber conquering the U.S. market. And we were close to that. So, yeah, on that toxic culture note, I, I wanted to move on to Susan Fowler's whistleblowing on sexual harassment. So you write that, uh, I'm quoting here, of all the scandals Uber has suffered to date, this Fowler memo struck the company the hardest. Yep. So compared to everything that was going on, like why was this scandal so impactful? I, th I, I think that Susan's memo, so at this point she writes the memo, she's an ex-employee, she's out of the company, but it really sort of put into words all the problems that women inside of the company had had with the culture to, to, the, to date. Um, no, there weren't like official HR processes. It was, it was a huge company. There were, you know, more than 10,000 employees and yet like some basic big company things weren't in effect. You know, you couldn't really take complaints about harassment or, or other things to managers and people who felt marginalized in the, inside the company really, it really resonated with them. And I think of all crises, like, you know, companies have to deal with external crises often. But when you're really in trouble is when your own people are starting to revolt. And I think that's that was the turning point, at least from when I was reporting on it from the outside, that was the turning point when things got bad inside and, and folks were starting to leak more frequently. So leaking was a big indicator, it seems like. Was there any other indicators that this seemed like a turning point internally? Yeah, I think uh, attrition was a huge problem, too. Like people, one thing I write about is is the, the cocktail party test, right? You 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 want to be able to go to a cocktail party in Silicon Valley and be proud of the company that you work for or be or be able to wear a T-shirt that says you're, that I work for Uber. And that started becoming a point of shame, not a pride for a lot of people. And they, uh, and recruiters, I talked to recruiters who were just going gangbusters trying to pick people off from Uber as they were bleeding talent uh, like crazy. So it's definitely this sort of internal morale thing and then people jumping ship where uh, folks at the top and then, you know, numbers actually going down. Like for a long time, they would say, look, we have all these problems, but people still love our service and the business. But after Delete Uber, like that was actually the numbers started going in the opposite direction. And that is that was way bad. Yeah, it's crazy that just the hashtag would have such an impact on <laughs> The business. Yeah. So another big scandal you write about in the book was Grayball, um, the program that Uber used to basically hide from authorities. 
to the extent you can, can uh, can you talk a bit about how you broke that story? You know, in reporting, as you probably know, just stories lead to other stories, right? Like right. once you write one thing, then it might resonate with some folks. And so I wrote something on Uber's culture that was a pretty rough story for them. And someone who was reading it, who was connected to the company, had told me that they read it and said, hey, I want to meet you and I want to talk about this program that Uber had at one point. And so we met, I detail that in the book, like the process of that, and then sort of the lengths we had to go to to stay quiet and private. I was able to break that story in, uh, I want to say, March of, of 2017. It was essentially a program that some thought was obstruction of justice, and it was a way for Uber to move into cities, hide their app from transportation officials or law enforcement officials, and evade capture or impounding of their vehicles while keeping the service up and running for normal customers to use. It was very smart and questionably ethical. <laughs> I don't want to give it all away, but you talk about how the leaker basically had to meet you at this really dingy pizza place. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, is that how leaks usually work at Uber? Are you meeting people at like these really like covert locations? I think it's all over the place. I think one thing that I feel has helped me weirdly enough is just putting myself out there a lot and I mean, reporters get scoops as we write about the companies themselves, right? So, like, the fact that I was writing about Uber for a few years probably helped me. But also, I like to keep a running dialogue on on Twitter, the hell site of choice for a lot <laughs> of journalists. And uh, kind of just talk through what I'm thinking about at any given moment. And, and folks have reached out to me through there. There's been all sorts of, you know, people come through intermediaries. It's always, it's very different every time. But, like... It's probably not smart to go to the Battery, if uh, which is a swanky, upscale San Francisco club for techies. If you're trying to meet like a private source, you want to go somewhere that's not going to find a lot of tech people there. And usually that's a, a crappy pizza parlor. The, the way you describe it made me deeply paranoid when I was reading it. I mean, as <laughs> I want to delete my Uber app now. Um, so, I mean, as a reporter covering Uber, were you ever worried that the company was just really aggressively surveilling you? Yeah, there were times in which, so a lot of my sources, or a number of my sources at least, I should say, they, they told me, okay, do two things. One, you need to delete all your contacts from Uber servers because there's a feature they use that you can split rides with people or share your location with people that they requires your contact list. So they want me to delete that from their servers and then just delete the app from my phone entirely and never use it also when getting to meet someone, always take public transportation to meet someone. So it was like very great lengths and some would say <laughs> paranoid <laughs> style lengths. But I do think it like... Look, these companies create the most sophisticated tracking devices and, and ways of, of measuring how their users move and interact with the world. So if you already have a company that's built this sort of amazing surveillance apparatus, like it's, it's best to go to great lengths to try to avoid it, especially when you're meeting people and talking about sensitive things. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll continue our conversation with Mike Isaac. Something else that struck me about the book is the way you talk about the press. There's this like motif of Uber executives saying stupid things to the press. Um, what about the company do you think made them so prone to these kind of unforced errors? I don't know. Maybe they, maybe Travis or Emil felt more comfortable with the press than they should have early on. Maybe they were used to an era of press coverage. I mean, I make a distinction of coverage of tech companies 
in the early days versus like more recent days, right? And now it's a more oppositional relationship, I would argue. But earlier on, it was just definitely um, this image of like whiz kid founders in hoodies making millions of dollars. So maybe they had, maybe they made the mistake of thinking that the press was on their side or going to write nice things about them or something, you know. But I mean, and some people did, you know, some people covered them very well or, you know, I just remember when most of the story for me was about writing how much money that they raised. And that was a really fascinating part of it just because they kept raising obscene amounts of money. They weren't as careful as they should have been, I guess, or at least they, they let the veil slip more than they, than they needed to or that they, than they thought they should, I guess. You know, it's weird because every time they tried to do a profile, usually if you give an access profile to some journalist, it might be a a nice fawning piece and it just they never got a nice fawning piece out of it <laughs> they couldn't help themselves i guess so yeah throughout the book is they're just getting so much bad press and i mean you're someone who's broken a lot of big stories about uber i'm thinking like the x to the x party in particular mm -hmm. i mean do you ever think about how you've shaped the public's perceptions of the company yeah totally that's a good question i i i'm obsessed with trying to be fair about this like i, I do i do think you know, have I been really hard on the company? Yes, absolutely. Have I done pieces that I think have shaped the public's perception negatively? Probably, but I think it's also like I'm just putting out there what they, they haven't wanted people to know about. Like the, the press officers specifically told all of the company to not advertise that they were at Uber for this huge party, this $25 million party that they threw in, in celebration uh, in 2015, right? So it's sort of, my thing is like, look, I'll put out the good and the bad, but like you're going to be judged on your own merits. And uh, if you're comfortable with how you act at the end of the day, then that shouldn't be a problem. So I guess zooming out big picture, um, I mean, Travis always had this ambition to eventually compete with Amazon like side by side. I think you told the Daily like last week that Amazon has built up this infrastructure that Uber hasn't, and it's just much easier for companies to compete with Uber now. I mean, do you think that Uber could still get to that point where they're massive and you know battling Amazon, or is it just are, are the dynamics just too out of their favor? I do wonder what Uber's future will look like. It's still pushing really hard this idea that it's a transportation platform, so they're going to be moving around people or things or f your burritos or whatever, right? Like, like the future is is theirs, whether it's by car, or by scooter, or by hot lunch plate. I guess uh, <laughs> I don't. Um, I don't count them out. Like I look, I think they're making investments in important areas. I think it's going to cost a lot of money to get to where they want to be. And Amazon, to go with that analogy, Amazon lost money for a number of years too to get to the dominant place that they are right now. It's just really difficult because they have a lot of well-financed competitors in regions across the world. Whereas Amazon, I don't think had as intense and capital capital intensive competition as they did, you know, compared to Uber today. So it's not like a perfect comparison, but at the same time, like if Uber can execute and and maybe pull the right levers and, you know, maybe they have to concede some defeats but win in other areas, then perhaps it's not crazy to think they could be at least some form of Amazon for transportation. Do you think Derek Hosroshahi could be the person that takes them there? I mean, does he have the the hustle, for lack of a better word? Yeah, hustle, 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 hustle. Um, that's funny. No, I mean, you're right. Like, hustle is what defined Uber. I think it's still um, TBD. Like, I think he's absolutely been this sort of calming force in the ranks that Uber probably needed in 2017 after the building was on fire for months on end, you know? And 
I think folks are happy internally that they're not getting just gnarly negative headlines every other week under Travis. I still think there's question as to whether he can push folks the same way that Travis did. You know, that's one thing that people really do appreciate Travis for and his early role in the company and for building it into what it is. So that's still a question mark. I don't know. I think um, it's been two years since Dara took over and I'll probably we should give him at least another year or so to check back in on his report card. You mentioned several times that, you know, Kalanick has this habit of pacing. Have you heard of any weird ticks or eccentricities that Dara has? <laughs> um, I, I think one one thing he said at one point was like, oh gosh, I'm going to mess this up. But it was something about, it's something about like leaders taking control. You have to like raise your hand and say, I have the D. Like oh, right. I'm I taking, I'm, I have the D and, and, and like, I don't think he quite realized what <laughs> having the D meant but right. because it ended up leaking out as like a funny joke. Um, and I, I mean, it's just, it was hilarious. <laughs> I'm it not sure if he story. still does that anymore. Yeah, it was totally good right. story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, they're definitely have like a dad as a CEO now. Um, <laughs> he's, he's yeah. Silicon Valley's dad. That's right. Right. Do you still use Uber after like doing all this reporting? I'm not back. I'm not in the paranoid place I was in 2017. Uh, my life has uh, improved immensely since then, just because I'm not going crazy anymore. Um, I use public transportation as much as possible, I would say. Uh, and then I will try to hail cabs when I can find them in San Francisco, but I don't exclude Uber and Lyft entirely from my life. I try to use a bunch of different services actually to see what they're all all like in a given time, especially if I have to report on Uber, like I just need to see what they're they're up to. I mean, when you're riding, do you find yourself kind of interviewing the drivers? I, I find like I, I do that a lot. Oh, totally. No, every I always want to know what they're thinking and like if they like it or if they're happy or if, what they're mad about. Yeah, all the time. Thanks so much for joining us. This was uh, really interesting to hear about. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate you having yeah. me. Up next, Shannon Pollitz will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. Okay, now it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me now is my colleague Shannon Paulus, who will be hosting the show next week. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Aaron. Uh, so what's your tab for this week? My tab is a piece titled, When I Took My Zip Cart Into the Wilderness. It's by Annie Lowry, who got stuck in like rural California on the coast um, with a zip cart that would not open. <laughs> um, and her like take-home message of the piece is that if you take a zip car, which works, of course, it's connected to an app or to a card with an RFID chip in it. And if you take it into a place without cell and data reception, it can potentially just stop working, which seems terrifying and like the start of a horror movie. And she talked to a bunch of folks who have been in similar situations, you know, where they're getting back from a hike only to find that their zip car won't open. And to one guy who got stuck in like a museum garage uh, because the garage didn't have cell phone service. And it just seems like a huge oversight on Zipcar's part. To be fair, she talked to someone at Zipcar who says that this is pretty rare. And it mostly only happens when, one, the Zipcar battery dies. Two, when people lose, like, the Zipcar card and can't, like, use the app to get in. Or three, when people need to extend their reservation. And otherwise, the Zipcar has, like, a little bit of internal memory. So it knows, like, okay, I see this card and I remember that this person is supposed to have access to it. 
But those are still a lot of scenarios in which things can go wrong. Yeah, that's weird that they would say it's rare. I mean, this seems like a totally plausible thing that could happen to me if I were taking a Zipcar out. It's weird that they haven't figured out a kind of workaround for this scenario. Yeah, and it turns out it's not unique to Zipcars either, this like connectivity issue. Mm-hmm. My editor was noting on Slack earlier that <laughs> one time she was on a Revel scooter. These are like these moped type things that you they function pretty much like Zipcar. They're in New York right now, they're kind of new, and they connect to an app. And her boyfriend had rented out the scooter and his phone died, and then they couldn't turn the scooter off without the app. So he had to go into a pizza place where they were meeting friends while she sat on this Revel scooter that wouldn't turn off so he could charge his phone and then come back out and turn the scooter off. And you would just think that, like, there would be, like, an emergency something somewhere on these vehicles or these scooters. Yeah, and it just reminds me of how how much these, like, transportation modes rely on, like, an app. And, uh, I mean, if someone figures out how to hack this, I'm sure people already have, but... I mean, it's just going to be kind of bedlam if uh, if anyone cracks it. Yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> the whole Internet of Things uh, conundrum, I guess. I do like this piece definitely had a tone of, I think, a warranted tone of, you know, we live in this magical Internet of Things, except what happens when we, we go offline suddenly or unexpectedly. And I definitely agree with that. But I also do think that the Internet of Things has, like, ultimately brought us a huge amount of convenience that it's easy to imagine, like, getting stuck with a rental car where the battery dies. And, like, not only are you in a similar situation as uh, Eddie Lowry was with the zip car, but, like, you can't even just walk and find somebody in a nearby area with a phone that's on them. I think, ultimately, technology kind of does make things easier, even if it is a lot more jarring when things go wrong. Yeah, I guess you won't have that, like, side-of-the-road scenario anymore where a good Samaritan just comes along and helps you out. Exactly. What's your tab this week? So my tab is another Facebook group. Um, It's called We Pretend It's 2007 to 2012 Internet. The group's description reads, No obvious prediction posts like, Wow, imagine if Donald Trump became president. They're just lazy. We post memes and popular trends from those years and generally act if it is that era because we are sad, pathetic human beings. Basically, what they do is they post memes and articles about like, movies and things that were going up at the time you know they, they have a lot of posts about like andrew garfield spider-man or like csi miami so i think a lot of websites have been able to capitalize on millennial nostalgia that's not new but what i appreciate about it is that they're clever about it as they uh as the description would suggest this isn't like buzzfeed where they just post a screenshot of like doodle jump and say like oh remember this the, the members of the group really try to inhabit and act like they are a 2007 internet user Sometimes this means like they're not going to use Apple emojis or the the most recent ones because those weren't there yet. So they'll do manual emojis. So either like the colon and the parentheses or like the X and the D for the laughing face. One thing I really like is they they try to pretend that news is just breaking and mimic the online conversation that would have cropped up around it. So I think today someone posted like the first ever public pictures of the iPhone 6. And people started debating, like, whether Apple or Nokia was going to dominate the uh, smartphone market. And, like, everyone says, like, oh, Nokia is, like, the way to go. It's way better. And uh, we know how that turned out. But it's a closed group, but I would recommend applying. It's just uh, kind of a nice way to uh, spend a Saturday afternoon. So what's special about the Internet from 2007 to 2012? Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like it's a totally random set of dates they picked. I mean, the the internet just likes these arbitrary like kind of things. They I don't think they put much thought into 
2012, but it's just a it's an interesting exercise. I think it could have been 2008 to 2004 or like 2012, 2015. I don't think it would have mattered that much. I think it's more about the uh, idea of it. I'm wondering if you have a sense of the demographic that's in this group, because when I think 2008 internet, I think very specifically like writing long personal posts on Tumblr in my dorm <laughs> and like reading Gawker and then like going and following like, you know, like the little celebrities on Gawker and being like, oh, like I'm looking in on the New York media scene. But that, you know, the conception of what the internet is, is so personal though. Um, and when I went to try to enter this group, I like didn't even, I had to slack you to ask what the I didn't even know what one of the questions for entry to the group was referencing so like what what slice of the population is this group replicating the internet for I guess that's kind of tough um to tell just because it's Facebook and you don't really know who anyone is but I, I mean it seems like when I see like a really personal poster like someone is clearly like excavating like a really old meme they saw like um I saw this thing where like you you like match the letters of your name to like animals or something and that's something I remember like just stumbling across when I was in middle school so I think those seem like these are actually people who were using the internet back then also it would be easy just to like look at what like what happened in 2008 and then find an old article and then try to conjure up a discussion around it. I really miss the late aught internets now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Internet. Yeah, before, before it was like really terrible. This was supposed to be an uplifting tab. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> How we got to this place. But, uh... All right. I'm going to go write about it on my Tumblr. <laughs> All right, go for it. <laughs> Bye. All right. That's our show. You can email us at if then at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron T. Mack. Thanks again to our guest, Mike Isaac. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a product of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Justin D. Wright. Thanks also to Melissa Kaplan, who engineered for us in D.C. We'll see you next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.